Okay. So we're talking about hope, but before I do that, I thought I'd share a little bit of a story from my life as a as a way of a bit of confession of sorts. Um, so back in 2008, a uh, long time ago, I was working as a commercial decorator, and uh, I remember listening to RNZ uh, at Smoko and uh, a news bulletin, and they were talking about this company in Hawke's Bay which had closed down because of a financial institution in New York which had, which had closed down. And I remember sort of sitting there eating my sandwich and thinking, how does that work? I have no idea how that works. I have no idea how the world works, actually. And it really dawned on me that, that, that at that moment I had, I had no idea how something which happened over there affected something which happened over here. And it sparked a thought in me which I couldn't let go of, which was maybe I should go and learn about this stuff. So I, I hung up my overalls and I, <laughs> not, not on the same day, but went, went off and, and enrolled in a university um, program to study economic geography. Um, and the reason I hadn't done so earlier was, you know, the reason I hadn't done the typical middle-class kid thing to finish high school and go off to university was because at high school I was a, a solid, solid C student, um, consistent C grades across the board. And so uh, the idea of university seemed like a bad idea. Um, surfing was my world, surfing and surfing alone, that's what I lived for. It filled the horizon of my mind. But in this moment, despite the sense of not being adequate as a student, I thought, I'm going to go and study. Um, I'm going to go and do this bachelor program. So it was a genuinely scary prospect for me at that time. I, I felt really inadequate. I felt majorly inadequate um, as this, what I thought was a pretty old 24-year-old surrounded by these very bright, young, shiny 18-year-olds um, who had all excelled in high school and I probably still had plaster dust in my hair and paint under my fingernails, but there I was sitting in this university lecture and, and much to my surprise, I took to study. I took to study like a duck takes to water. I just absolutely loved it. And I was extremely good at it. This is not a humble brag, but I was really, really good at it. Like, um, I came first in all my classes, picked up awards, scholarships, extracurricular research projects, worked for, you know, as a teaching assistant, research assistant, anything I could get my hands on, I just loved it and um, thrived in it. Spent my summers nerding out, doing geography projects just for fun. And um, so naturally I, I, I kept going and I found great uh, life and excitement in this, um, discovering this part of myself. and started to entertain sort of visions, grandiose visions about uh, myself being a significant scholar and, um, you know, publishing, what, sh you know, what should I publish and who should I publish with and, and, you know, what should my first book be called and where should I do my PhD, you know, um, big, big dreams that I was having. And then about um, maybe three quarters of the way into my master's program, I suddenly just began to crack. I, I suddenly found that I no longer had uh, joy, let alone I felt like I couldn't even do it. I couldn't do it anymore. I lost all of my ability to do it. And it was like all of these, all of this track record of A pluses became like these lead weights in my, in my soul. It's kind of hard to explain, but it's like every time I did well, I felt worse. I felt like more inadequate and more lost. Um, and, you know, like I say, I was doing really well, but, but I, I began to wonder, you know, 
do I have the energy to sustain this? Do I actually have what it takes to, to do this work? And the truth is I was, I was exhausted spiritually, um, I was exhausted mentally, physically, um, working very hard at that point. And um, looking around at the world of higher education and thinking, is this what I'm going to have to do for the rest of my life? I'm going to have to just work and work and work. And um, there's people who I'd been you know, looking up to and um, reading their work and enjoying suddenly became like accusers. They became people who were saying, you're not good enough. Not that they were saying that, but in my soul, you know, it was that sense of, of inadequacy. So these people transformed from yeah, being inspirations to being accusers. And, and like nothing had changed. Nothing consequently had changed. Nothing materially had changed. But for me, something that began as something really sweet became really sour, became really life-sucking. So I tried to drop out, but I, I was sort of too deep in. Um, I couldn't stop, you know, I had, to, I had to finish my work. I'd actually had some people that were paying for it. So, um, so I dragged myself across the line and handed in my, my thesis. And, you know, I handed it in, but I did it with zero joy. I did it with total exhaustion and depletion. And my hope for an international career as a superstar geographer dried up. Um, higher education felt like a prison and the weird irony in all of it was that my work never suffered. Like, my work was always good. I won an award for my thesis. And this is another humble brag, but, you know, I, I got Best Master's Thesis Award, and I absolutely hated it and was absolutely, like, drained by it. So, yeah, I felt really empty receiving this award and receiving this success in a, in a, in a, in a project and in an area of life, which I thought I really wanted. Um, it, it really only reinforced this feeling that I had worked really hard to climb to the top of this ladder and then when I got there I realised that the ladder was actually leaning against the wrong wall. It was, I, was on, I was in the wrong place. I'd worked so hard to get somewhere that I really didn't want to be. And what began out of a pure sort of curiosity at that Smoko site became uh, something which I had to work at and something which I had to prove and justify to myself and to others. And so the joy really evaporated. Now, I'm sure that uh, if we thought about it and went around the room, if we had time this morning, all of us would have sort of similar stories in our life of things that you really, really wanted. Thing that, things, that you, things that you placed your hope in, your, your deep hope in. Things that you thought, maybe this will satisfy and fulfill me and maybe things that you've worked hard for you know worked yourself to the bone for um, to get that object of desire to, to work and strive to get that thing that you really really want only to find that when you get it it's hollow uh, or if not hollow it's a good thing a good gift that God's given and you've ended up strangling the life out of it um, killing it in an attempt to make this good gift the ultimate thing the ultimate source of security and identity. And maybe you might even be in that place now. You know, maybe you might be in a place where you are striving for something or thinking about something deep. A career track or a relationship you're trying to form or a, a noble project that you're dreaming about. A goal for your family or a goal for your community or, or just for yourself. Something that you're hoping for. Because we're all, we're all built for hope. Hope is hardwired into us. It's in our DNA. 
And there's lots of studies that have shown, you know, that when you lose hope, you die. You, you actually die without hope. When you stop believing in a better future, you just die. So hope drove me. It drove me to strive and it drove me to, to work hard and to try to achieve. But it also nearly led me to, you know, a nervous breakdown, really. And, uh, yeah, <coughs> hope gets us up in the morning, but, you know, sometimes, like I said, sometimes the thing which we hope for can end up being the thing which, which kills us. So one question for this morning, uh, which would be good to prayerfully ponder. Where is your hope? Where is your hope right now? And how much of your security is in that hope? Or to put it another way, what's the main thing that you go to, the main source of thing, uh, the main source in your life that you think, well, if all else fails, at least I have this. At least I have my job. At least I have um, you know, my natural abilities, my, my street smarts. At least I have my, my house or maybe my relationships. Because I think... You know, if we're honest, we all have these things deep down. I know we're in a church and we're supposed to say it's Jesus, but we all have these things in us which we go, that would be hard if I lost that. I don't know what I'd do if I lost that. So much of our hope really is rooted in, in things of the world, things that um, we either already have or things that we, we're working hard to get. Things that we can envision happening, maybe, if we're at our most optimistic. But Advent, in the season of Christmas, reminds us um, that Christian hope is totally alien to this kind of um, worldly or sort of biological hoping, hoping for success in the jungle. Um, Advent hope is a totally different kind of hope. Because we know, you know, we know from our own lives, we know from, you know, my story, from everyone's story, from watching other people, we know that, you know, jobs and relationships, health, housing, all of these things, family, they're all liable to loss and to fracturing and to decay. So the season of Advent invites us to, to question these things and to dislodge, dislodge false hopes from the center of our soul, things which have found their way into the center which don't belong there. And to doubt, you know, doubt that they really are that sure. Health, wealth, status, relationships. Things which we might be able to control if we, if we try hard enough and if we have a little luck on our side. Advent um, invites us to depend upon a hope that doesn't come from within, but a hope which comes from without, a hope which comes from outside ourselves. A hope which, has no, which we have no ability to achieve with our own cunning, with our own power, with our own street smarts. And in this regard, Advent hope is strange. It's, um, it's alien. It doesn't really make sense in the world, Advent hope. Outside of Scripture, outside of the Bible, um, I think one of the best definitions of hope that I've recently come across is in this poem by, by Emily Dickinson called Hope is a Thing with Feathers. And this is what she writes. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words, and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never an extremity that asked a crumb of me. So here Dickinson compares um, hope to a little bird that, that has, you know, sings the sweetest song, 
even in the strongest storm, the sweetest song which can't be quieted by, by the blowing of the wind. Hope comes to perch in the soul, a bit like a bird comes to perch in a tree. The bird doesn't belong to the tree, the tree doesn't generate the bird, the bird arrives in the tree. It arrives as a grace. And because it comes from ex, you know, an external source, because it comes from without, without rather than within, um, its song is not determined by what we do, by the weather outside. It sings the tune um, without the words and never stops at all, as it says. It's different to optimism, you know. Optimism comes from within. It comes from um, an assessment, uh, a discernment of the, the tendencies of the present. So we look around at the present and we think, Let's make some predictions about what could happen, some future good which could come out of this. Optimism looks at the present and sees it as pregnant with the future and, and tries to track that progress, try to go after the good. Whereas hope, as the poem suggests, works in the exact opposite way. It, it's not based on a, um, an accurate extrapolation of what the future is going to be by looking around at the present, by looking at our life, by looking at how much money we have, looking at what securities we have. Hope doesn't regard any of those things as the source. Christian hope says, contrary to optimism, that hope is not born out of the present circumstances. Jürgen Moulton puts it this way. He says, present and future, experience and hope, stand in contradiction to each other in Christian eschatology with the result that man is not brought into harmony and agreement with the situ given situation, but is drawn into conflict between hope and experience. So we're, we're, we're brought into conflict between our current circumstances and between hope. The Christian lives a life of tension, um, of conflict in that way. We live in a tension between hope and experience. And anybody who looks around the world, you know, all you need to do is open the newspaper um, I was reflecting on it because I was preaching on Advent a year ago, and my title slide had a picture from Bethlehem, with the you know with the big wall running through it and, and people with guns. And now look at it, you know. Um, so if we look around the world um, and look for a source of hope, we're gonna not we're not really gonna find much. And we'll be tempted to put our heads in the sand. We'll be tempted to go, it's just too terrible. I don't want to look. But Advent reminds us about this agonizing tension which we're called to live in which is to say that we hold on to hope regardless of experience. Paul speaks about this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8 where he writes, uh, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes or who waits for what is seen? But if we hope, we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. So everywhere in scripture, hope is directed to that which is not yet visible. Hope is always directed to the invisible and the not yet. Hope is always outside the realm of possibility. And that's why um, Paul uses that perplexing phrase in Romans 4.18. Um, I think it's King James English, but uh, this description of Abraham hoping against hope is because the word hope and expectation have the same kind of uh, swirl of meanings. Hopes against expectations. So you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah. At age 75, God speaks to Abraham. And at this point, Abraham has no children of his own. And God tells him that he's not just going to become, become a father, he's going to become a father uh, of not just a family, but of a great nation. And 
And so he gets delivered this promise. And then years go by. So he's 75 when he gets this promise. Years go by. And God appears to him again, this time when he's about 100. And Abraham, in a moment of honesty, says, Hey, God, what's going on? Um, he, he voices his doubt. Like, um, and this is what he says. Oh, a bit small text, sorry. Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son, who is your own flesh and blood, will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up, look at the sky, and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So for Paul the Apostle, this story um, became not just the taproot of the, the hopes of Israel, um, the hopes of the Jewish story, but it became the story of the whole world. So in Romans 4, Paul singles out Abraham, Abraham's decision um, to hope in God, and he, he frames it as the paradigm of Christian faith. This is what it says. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham's hope was justified, was made right in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Abraham believed in God's ability to make it happen, to give life to a body that was as good as dead. So for Abraham, he saw God as the God of hope, the God of impossible things, the God who justifies that which is otherwise unjustifiable, the God who makes reasonable that which is unreasonable, the God who makes possible that which is otherwise impossible. And at the end of, of the letter to Romans, Paul refers to God as the God of hope. He picks up this phrase, you know, the God of hope, um, from Jeremiah, who again like repeats it a lot as Yahweh is the, the hope of Israel. And like, like Jeremiah, Paul saw hope as sitting within the very identity of God, the God of hope. His claims about God's reliability were made in the context of significant hardship and suffering, both Jeremiah and Paul. Um, Paul offers this list, kind of a brutal list, 
of his own sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. So boasting and weakness was, was culturally odd, um, an odd thing for Paul to do. Um, and yet he didn't, he didn't hesitate to do so in the context of these rich Corinthians um, because he knew that it only, it only served to highlight the otherworldliness of this hope that he had, the otherworldliness of this hope which had come to perch in, in his heart and to sing its song. So again, he, he kind of starts soaring in Romans 8, leaping off the page. Um, he says, what then? What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's using lots of words to say something pretty simple in, in some ways. He's just saying, when God makes a promise, we can hope. We can hope that he will come through. Even the course of Paul's own life, all this trouble he described, misadventures and, and persecution that he faced, he would be someone who could say, oh, this is not going well, this is a disaster. But he understood that the, the future was not determined by these, these events and these things which were going on. Even you know, when the terror, I guess, the real terror of, of that present situation, which Paul experienced and maybe which, which some of you experience, maybe which you're facing right now, um, anxieties about where your life's going, anxieties about what you have or don't have. It, when, when the present circumstances of life offer us a no exit situation, when they're at like a dead end, no escape route, no golden ticket, no um, miracle cure, our hope in the God who saves still sings because it comes from without, it comes as a gift. So in the midst of 
hard times, um, personally or globally, um, how do we find ways to strengthen our hope? It's an important question. How do we how do we actually hold on to hope? After all, that's why you've come this morning to be reminded of of the hope that we've all been called to. So first, we need to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to us, and remind ourselves and remind each other of stories of God's faithfulness, because in the that's in the biblical view, it's always the past stories of what God has done, which gives confidence for what He will do. God's past faithfulness motivates hope. So every week it's important, you know, that we find ways to hear each other's stories, to, to tell each other's, to tell our story to each other about what God's doing in our lives uh, so that we can hope for, for what God's going to do. And I've really enjoyed being part of a small group with, with others as well this term and, you know, every week being able to share a little bit about what God's doing and the different movements of his work in our lives. Um, every week my hope is stirred by, by hearing stories from other people about how they're living out their desire to know God more. Um, and I'm grateful for this church, and I'm grateful for this weekly rhythm of meeting together, of, of worshipping together, of all of you and all of your stories, which give me hope as well. And my faith wouldn't last very long without this rhythm of being with other Christians. So we need our stories, and we need to hear our stories, and we need to hear each other's stories. The other thing we need for hope to flourish or to hold on to hope is that we need to remind ourselves, like I've been saying, that hope is something that we can't see. It's something that we can't grasp and we can't see. And so because it's hard to see or because it's impossible to see hope, um, we are very liable to kind of put something else in its place as a sort of temporary stopgap, um, like my earlier story illustrated. You know, I, I thought I knew what I wanted. I thought I was really clear about what I wanted, like an academic career and a, and a nice office with a big glass window that I could look at, you know, the, the autumn leaves changing and students that I could have and talk to and teach. Um, I thought, yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be an awesome life. I'd like that life. So I had a picture of it in my mind and I could, you know, enter into this fantasy about, about this life that I was working towards. And then I could do my best to make this mental image of this life, you know, conform. I could make reality try to conform to this picture. But it was a utopian picture. It wasn't that there's anything wrong with that. It, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the dreams that, that God's given you either. But what was wrong is when it becomes uh, an idol, I guess. So genuine hope is not like this. Genuine hope is inscrutable, it's invisible, it's hard to even articulate. We think about Abraham again. Think about... Um, you know, he had a pretty concrete idea about what he was hoping for. It would involve Sarah becoming pregnant. It would involve a baby being delivered to health and growing up to be an adult, passing on, having a family of his own. So Abraham had a pretty concrete expectation of what his hope looked like. But the truth is that his hope was even in that. It was obscure. The real hope, the real thing he was hoping for was more than that, but he didn't know it. His hope was never just about Isaac. Um, it wasn't even just about the great nation that would come from Isaac. Um, the true end to which Abraham's hope was pointing appeared thousands of years later in an obscure manger in Bethlehem. You know, the thing which he was really hoping for, he didn't even know what he was hoping for. It appeared in obscurity and hiddenness and darkness in the birth of Jesus. And you know, even more, the hope that Abraham was hoping for 
was not just born in a manger, but also his hope was found, you know, in an executioner's yard in Golgotha. That's where his hope was also found. Um, his hope, Abraham's hope, was pointing beyond that. It was pointing to a garden tomb, to a resurrected Lord on Easter morning. And his hope was pointing even beyond that to Jesus' future return to his second coming. Abraham didn't know any of that, and yet he hoped. And there's something about that, I think, something about real hope, deep hope, true hope, that is beyond our understanding, that is always outside of our grasp, always unable to be articulated and, and mapped out. That's when we know it's true hope, something which can't be comprehended with our imaginations. And again, Paul in Romans 8, he reminds us again of this idea that the incomprehensibility of hope. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but the hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in, abund in accordance with the will of God. So we don't even really know what we seek. You know, that's what Paul's saying. And even in our prayer, we don't even know what we're wanting and what, how to pray. But the Spirit intercedes with our spirit. We don't even know what to ask for. And if we think we know what we asked for, I can guarantee you it's too small. Uh, I can guarantee you if you can put it into a box, it's too small. What we're asking for, what we're hoping for. The story of Scripture and the experience of, of the Spirit, the experience of stories of this community all remind us that what we are really hoping for is yet to be revealed. And in this sense, we're in good company. We're in good company with the shepherds on the hillside who, uh, you know, maybe they hope for a, a good breeding season and maybe they hope for um, some tax relief um, from Herod. Um, we're, we're in good company with, with Mary and Joseph. We're in good company with the Magi or even John the Baptist who pondered what was his cousin doing are you the messiah um we're in good company with jesus disciples who are constantly perplexed like what is this what is he talking about because they all had hopes they all had deep and true and real hopes but they didn't understand what they were really hoping for until they saw jesus resurrected and they were like oh, that was it that was what i really wanted you know mary's song of empires being turned upside down she was like a, a freedom fighter I think you know this little teenager that wanted to see Rome smashed to pieces what she was hoping for was yeah my son's going to do that and then she saw him crucified and died and buried and resurrected and she was like oh, that's what it was you know, that's what it was so it wasn't that her hope was wrong it's that her hope wasn't deep enough it had to go deeper so we are the same so we need, we need a bigger hope. Um, and finally, we need a living hope. Um, so telling the stories, embracing the hiddenness of hope, and receiving a living hope in Jesus. 
So hope is not just an abstract concept, it's not just a dream that we might have, but it's a living hope. It's something which is alive and which we need, which we need to receive. John Calvin, of all people, um, talks about hope as the inseparable companion of faith. He says, when this, you know, when hope, when this hope is taken away, however eloquently or elegantly we, dis we discourse concerning faith, we are convicted of having none. Hope is nothing else than the expectation of those things which faith has believed to have been truly promised by God. Um, I'm going to skip that quote. It's a bit too wordy, but what he's saying is hope without faith is dead. We can have the right beliefs about God. We can have the right, um, you know, we can have all the right dogma. But if we don't have hope, um, we will, uh, our beliefs won't really do anything within us. They just live in our heads. We need to experience hope. Hope is a gift. It doesn't come to us through mental abstractions or through secondhand stories from other people. Hope alights in us like a bird. It, 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 like a bird, like the Holy Spirit, like it comes and rests in us and takes up residence in us. So having talked about it this morning, it didn't feel very Christmassy, did it? it didn't, but that's, that's the way Advent is. It kind of goes, it goes right to the heart of things, which I love. But having talked about it, it'll be good this morning to, to let God rekindle hope in us. Maybe some of these things which I've been talking about. Remember that hope is a gift. It's not something you have to work up within yourself. We can say, Lord, I need you to come. I need you to come. I need your spirit to take up residence in, in me like a bird and that it would sing no matter what circumstances are going on. It would sing in my life. And that it would, in doing so, dislodge false hopes. It would, it would show false hopes for what they are. So, so why don't we stand and let's, let's just invite God to come and, and to give us this gift of hope. God loves to give good gifts to his children. Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. So, Lord, we do, as a people here in Advent, uh, in this room, we ask, Lord, that, that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would come and perch in our, in our heart, Lord, and that we would hear your song. Jesus, we don't even know what we're hoping for when we say, come, Lord Jesus but we know that you are leading us into true life. So would you come? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.